0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, and I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And before we get started on talking about part two of Fanny Brace's life, uh, we should mention again that we are going to Paris.
1: We are, and that if you're hearing this, you could go with us. You could. <laughs> <laughs> so this episode is coming out toward the end of March, 2019. And the final deadline for people to book the trip is April 3rd. 2019.
0: Yeah, and we would love to have you with us. It's going to be so fun. We're staying in this really darling hotel right near the Moulin Rouge. The neighborhood looks fantastic. There's lots of cute little restaurants and fun places, and we're there for long enough. It is June 2nd to the 9th, so that it starts to feel like your own little home away from home, which I love. Yeah. Uh, There's going to be a really good mix of, there's a lot of planned activities, but there's also plenty of free time, so you won't be glued to a group the whole time. If you want to go explore on your own, you have enough time to do that.
1: Yeah, as an introverted person, I understand the value of some unstructured, potentially solo time.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but it's going to be fun. No matter how you like to travel, we have you covered. If you are a solo person traveling, great. Don't be afraid to join us because there will be plenty of other solo people. If you want to bring a friend or a loved one, also great. We're just going to have a great time. We're going to learn all about the French Revolution and visit lots of historically significant sites. So if this all sounds like fun to you, and I promise it's going to be, you can come to our website, mistinhistory.com. If you look at the menu bar at the top of the page, there is a link that says Paris trip with an exclamation point to convey our deep excitement. You can click on that. It's going to take you to all the information, tell you how to sign up if that is something that you think you should do. I think you should do it. It's just going to be amazing. Uh, But moving on from that, we are talking today about Fanny Bryce, part two. (laughs) This uh, is, like I said, part two of our look at the life of comedian Fanny Bryce, whose personal life was often a mess, even though her onstage personas were all about laughter. If you have not listened to the first episode, I highly encourage you to do so because we are basically jumping in with part two exactly where we stopped the last time. So if you are not up to speed on that, none of this is gonna make any
1: sense. When we left off at the end of part one, Fanny had decided to join Nick Arnstein on a trip to London, and the two of them had a great time living basically as a married couple while Fanny worked on the London stages, and Nick allegedly did some business.
0: Yeah, (laughs) that's business with air quotes. Uh, When Nick and Fanny returned to New York in the fall they moved into a new apartment and that meant that they were leaving Fanny's mother Rose behind in the old one. Fanny and her mother had been living together for a long time. Fanny and Nick set up their new house on West 58th Street and their apartment soon became sort of a socializing nexus where everyone from her mother's poker group, which was like very small anti fun, to high-level politicians would all come and share drinks and a laugh with the entertainer and her charming, allegedly businessman, Paramore. And the two traveled again to London and Fanny was going to start an engagement there but the start of World War 1 quickly ended that plan and she and Nick returned to New York.
1: Nick had used Fanny's money to start a number of business ventures. All of them started out with great gusto and then they slowly fell apart as he lost interest in them. He'd go away on business trips with only a vague sense of information and then show up in whatever city Fanny was touring to try to take her to dinner after the show. Yeah, he lived a little bit of a cloak-and-dagger life where he would just be like, oh, it's boring business
0: and not really tell her any details of what he was doing. A few years into their relationship, while Fanny was working on a musical comedy called Hands Up, Nick's illegal means of money-making got him into very serious trouble. He had been working with a group of criminals known as the Gondorf Ring. Those were named for the brothers at the center of it. And the Gondorfs, in this particular
1: instance, were involved in wiretapping. On June 28, 1915, Nick was sentenced to time in Sing Sing after a jury found him guilty in all this. Fanny paid not only for his bail, which was a massive $25,000, but also for lawyers to mount appeals in the case. She worked, but she primarily stayed in New York rather than going on tour during this appeals process because she wanted to be near Nick. Once all the appeals had run out and Nick was incarcerated, she had used her influence in every way she could to try to make his time in prison as easy as possible. She visited him at least once a week. She always brought him home-cooked meals and fawned over him while he was in there.
0: Yeah, she had really, like, her influence, as well as the influence of some of his other... Um, associates who had a lot of power basically made this as close to, like, staying in a hotel as you could be while you were incarcerated. Like, he would hang out with the warden and have dinner with the warden in his apartment, and it it was not a case of what you would call hard time. It was also during this time that Fanny started collaborating with Blanche Merrill, a songwriter, to build on some of the character-style singing that she had done while she was appearing in the Ziegfeld Follies. Blanche, who was a collaborator with her for years after this, put together numbers that would become Fanny's bread and butter over the next several years, including Becky's Back in the Ballet and The Yiddish
1: Bride. As she ramped up these new songs, she got another message from Florenz Ziegfeld offering her a return to the Follies at a rate of $200 per week. If you'll recall from our previous episode, she had negotiated rates much higher than that after leaving the Follies. Bryce, at this point, was easily commanding a $1,000 a week for her work, so she replied with a snarky telegram that read, Fanny Bryce found dead in her room in the hotel stop. The only clue is a telegram signed by F. Ziegfeld Jr., which was clutched in her hand.
0: There are a number of instances of snarky telegrams back and forth between them over the years. Sometimes that caused some confusion and misunderstanding between them because, as you know... Written word is not always the best way to convey sarcasm, (laughs) so sometimes one of them would take something seriously when the other was joking, or sometimes one or the other would play the fact that there was ambiguity there and then maybe say something a little bit mean and then later be like, oh no, you misunderstood, it was a joke. So they had a a pretty respectful relationship of one another, but they did play a little rough in in their dealings. But Fanny also did not shut Zigfield out completely, and they negotiated to more amenable terms. She ended up rejoining the Follies at the rate of $550 a week. That is a lot less than she was getting elsewhere. However, there was also a lot of prestige to being part of his show, and that was to her the trade-off. The second time around with the Follies was a triumph for Fanny. The new material that she had developed with Blanche Merrill was wildly successful.
1: Fanny was always ambitious in her work, and this continued to be true here. She decided that she wanted to transcend her Variety Bill roots and make a run at a true play. Her first play was a show titled Why Worry? But she should have worried. The play was a mess, despite several rewrites that followed just dismal preview reviews, and Fanny was not great in it.
0: Yeah, it was just one of those cases where none of the magic came together. In October 1918, just a month after Why Worry closed, Fanny finally got married to Nick Arnstein once he had finalized his divorce. At that point, they had been together six years. And Fanny had insisted that after she waited through his prison term, he had been pardoned in July of that year, he had to marry her or the whole thing was over.
1: It was not an easy road. Nick's wife, Carrie, didn't want to grant him a divorce. But then she was caught with another man, which gave Nick leeway to pursue a legal divorce, whether Carrie wanted it or not. Carrie went the litigious route and sued Fanny for alienation of affections, claiming that Fanny had stolen her husband. There was a lot of back and forth and cajoling on Nick's part, including getting Carrie drunk and having her sign a paper that ended the whole lawsuit, only to have her withdraw her promise to drop the whole matter. But she did eventually agree to a divorce. And she left Fanny's name out of it. All of the legalities of
0: divorces at this time are crazy to me. Like, there's always like, they would, even couples that were splitting amicably would kind of do these strange pantomimes where, like, the man would check into a hotel with another woman who he wasn't actually involved with in any way just so that someone could see him with another woman to give grounds for divorce because that was easier than them, like, claiming irreconcilable differences, which I think maybe didn't exist at the time. Or, you know, if the wife had maybe had some infidelity, it would be such a stain on her reputation that sometimes the husband would take the hit in that way. It was a little bananas. Reading her (laughs) biographies, they always mention all of this fancy footwork that people do just to get the divorce done. There had, throughout all of this divorce madness, been a ticking clock on the whole situation because Fanny was pregnant, and she was getting more pregnant and more obviously pregnant by the day. Uh, For a while, she wore, like, a special undergarment that kind of concealed her pregnancy on stage, but eventually there was no way to even do that anymore. Uh, And not long after the wedding, she and Nick welcomed their first child, a daughter named Frances. And Fanny had continued to perform well into her third trimester, and she went back to stage work as quickly as possible after the baby was born. But while Frances was still a baby, at a time when it seemed like their lives might be settling down, things turned very turbulent again.
1: When Fanny got home from performing at a late-night show in the very wee hours of February 12, 1920, her husband was packing a suitcase— And asked if she had been followed. He also told her that he was innocent. And then he left with no further explanation. She had no idea where he had gone. Yeah, this was one of those
0: times where uh, Nick Arnstein, who always had that ability to remain cool as a cucumber in every situation, actually appeared visibly stressed. And it really alarmed her. And within days, Fanny Bryce was being interviewed by police it turned out that Nick was being accused of bond robbery, working with employees of Wall Street brokerage houses and their messengers to steal small increments over the course of six months, totaling to a massive sum of more than $5 million. While Nick was accused of planning the whole thing, in actuality, he was probably involved with about half of those thefts.
1: Fanny was followed by police, and she was questioned repeatedly. And the hope was that she would give them some information about where Nick had gone. She really had no idea, though. She was really open with the authorities and she didn't hide anything, but she wasn't the least bit meek either. She made it clear that she found the whole thing irksome and that she would not let them push her around. Yeah, she had no problem sassing police.
0: Uh, eventually, Nick did reach out to Fanny by sending a coded note to their friend W.C. Fields, who she was working with at the time, and he then shared it with Bryce. And that note mentioned a brazier shop on 2nd Avenue, and after reading it, Fanny knew that she needed to go to to this Brazier factory to receive calls from Nick. Once they communicated, he asserted to her that he was completely innocent, and
1: Fanny completely believed him. Over the course of the next several months, Fanny was just consumed with stress. She lost 20 pounds. She couldn't sleep. The police and press hounded her everywhere she went. Eventually, Arnstein's attorney convinced him to come back to New York. He met Fanny and his attorney on May 15, 1920 and drove to the assistant district attorney's office to turn himself in.
0: This might be too much for some women to endure, but apparently not Fanny. even though it was obviously taking a toll on her health. We're going to talk about how devoted she stayed through this whole ordeal after we have a quick sponsor break. <music> As things continued to unravel and Nick's highly publicized trial played out, Fanny stood by him. She and Nick had their second child, William, named after his father's attorney during this time, and Fanny took care of all of Nick's legal fees just as she had the first time around. Even though she was shouldering all of the financial burden in the situation, Arnstein was not particularly loyal to her during this time. While he was staying in a hotel in Washington, D.C. with his attorney for months away from Fanny, it became known that the two men often entertained ladies late into the night, and they served alcohol in their rooms despite prohibition. But even as tales of Nick's infidelity reached her, Fanny was still completely blinded by her love, and she
1: wrote off all of his bad behavior as just being the result of stress. Nick's first trial resulted in a hung jury, but he was ultimately found guilty. He was sentenced to time in Leavenworth Penitentiary. He was incarcerated for 19 months starting in 1924. Fanny still stuck with him the whole time, although the two had started to fight and really fight for the first time in the months leading up to his prison sentence. The adultery was getting to be too much. She was starting to feel like she had always just been his pawn.
0: Yeah, she really finally started to get a perspective on things and was like, wait, you've been using me for, like, years. And through all of the legal wrangling with Nick and having their second child and all of this stress, Fanny still worked consistently. As with her daughter, she had worked through most of that pregnancy and she took only the bare minimum of time away after William was born.
1: The years that Fanny was married to Arnstein were really productive despite all these constant distractions. She went back to the Ziegfeld Follies for several years and appeared in a number of other shows that were produced by Florence Ziegfeld Jr., She became known as a comedic genius and she was savvy enough to make use of her predicament in real life to try to optimize her stage time. In 1921, she started singing a song titled, My Man, which was far more serious than her usual stage bits. She opened with the lines, It's cost me a lot, but there's one thing I've got, it's my man. A song about a woman who loves a man despite being treated completely deplorably by him, really connected with audiences and they assumed that she was referencing Nick Arnstein. Fanny,
0: despite being a very popular entertainer as the 1920s started, was still longing to be taken a little more seriously, even as she made a very nice life for herself as a comic act. She had gotten good enough reviews for some of her work that she started thinking about a more serious acting career. But though she had the talent, she felt like she didn't really have the looks to be considered for leading lady parts in dramas or even just slightly more serious musical comedies. And to that end, she met with a plastic surgeon in 1923.
1: There were a couple of different factors in Fanny's desire to change her appearance. One was that she was getting older. She was in her early 30s and not really seen as an ingenue. And two, her husband's cheating was really taking a toll on her self-esteem. And three, she worried that her, quote, Jewish nose was going to keep her doing essentially sight-gag humor that played off of her looks to perpetuate racial stereotypes, while that kind of work had made her famous, there were growing ethnic biases and racism in the United States that made Fanny worry about the longevity of her career.
0: And as an aside, there is a really fantastic article in the Journal of the American Medical Association about the introduction of that term Jewish nose into scientific literature in 1914 and how that has created an ongoing problem since then around ideas of ethnic identity and beauty. Uh, And that article examines how the medical community has contributed to that problem over the years in part uh, because some doctors would offer to fix people by stripping them of the traits that might suggest anything other than a waspy appearance. It is a really good read, and I encourage anybody who's interested in that to uh, check it out. We will link to it in the show notes.
1: Uh, I will note that Jewish uh, communities are not the only people affected by this trend within the world of cosmetic surgery at all.
0: no, absolutely not. And I that that article um is it opens it uses that as kind of the entree to discuss mm-hmm. the wider issue of like not everybody has to look like a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant to be pretty. yeah, but we have been teaching people that even within our own ranks for years and years and years,
1: yeah. Despite Nick's opposition to this, Fanny moved forward with getting a nose job, and the surgery became a news item itself. And for a while, the papers were really gossiping about that instead of about Arnstein's legal trouble. But the surgery did not change her perception in the eyes of the public or casting directors. Fanny still was not considered to be a beauty, and theater producers wanted her to be funny and not serious.
0: This is also sometimes pointed out as like the first time that she really defied Nick Arnstein, uh, because he very much did not want her to have this surgery, and she was like, I don't care, I'm doing it. And when Nick got out of prison, he immediately connected with some of the guys that he had met while he was in Leavenworth, intending to go into business together running a casino. Fanny was mortified by this whole plan. She wanted Nick to just work as her manager, a job that she felt would keep him out of trouble, probably would also keep him close to her so she could keep an eye on his behavior, but he insisted on this casino in Chicago, and Fanny ended up giving him money for the venture.
1: Nick also started cheating with less and less regard for covering it up and seemed resentful that Fanny was clearly the head of their family. Additionally, there were ongoing criminal charges against him for his various wrongdoings. All this was way too much stress on an already fragile relationship, and in the fall of 1927, the two of them divorced after 15 years together.
0: In 1926, leading up to the divorce, Fanny starred in the play Fanny, which was not, in fact, about her life, but it was written for her. The problem was, while she was a great comedic ham, she wasn't really a good actress-actress. Even with extensive rewrites and coaching and extra rehearsals, the reviews were really abysmal, and one reviewer wrote, it was written by Willard Mack and Mr. Belasco, and they both ought to be ashamed of themselves and of each other.
1: In the late 1920s, Bryce decided to try her look in film. After The Jazz Singer came out in 1927, it gave Fanny a unique leg up. She might not be considered Hollywood beautiful, but she could sing. And after Al Jolson made history singing on film, people wanted more of that. Warner Brothers, which had produced The Jazz Singer, put together a screenplay for a film starring Fanny Bryce titled My Man and started touting Bryce in the press as the female Al Jolson.
0: Fanny was 37 when My Man came out in December of 1928, and she made history as the first woman to star in a sound film. But that movie didn't rocket her to stardom on the national or global scale. The very skills that had made her a hit on stage, like her exaggerated mannerisms and being able to pull off heavy accents, just did not translate into film. And My Man only got a so-so reception, despite being part of this exciting new medium of
1: talkies. Just a couple of months after My Man opened on screen, Fanny married for a third time, this time to a man named Billy Rose. Billy was a songwriter, and he started writing songs and putting together musical variety shows for Fanny to star in. Although they both loved music and the theater, most of the people who knew Fanny and Billy thought they weren't really a great match for each other. But Billy thought Fanny was amazing and once described her singing as thunder in the mountains. The two of them had met after Fanny sang a song of Billy's called Tonight You Belong to Me, and she loved it so much that she asked to meet the songwriter.
0: I want to tell you that's another happy, happy marriage, but it's not... (laughs) (laughs) We'll get to how it all falls apart. Uh, And we'll talk about how Fanny's career played out in the 1930s. But first, we're going to pause for a word from one of our sponsors. During the 1930s, Bryce continued to struggle in the film industry. She made several more movies after My Man, but success continued to elude her in that medium. She also continued to work in the theater, but she ventured into radio. And overall, even though
1: film was problematic, this was a
0: pretty successful time.
1: Fanny's story in the 1930s also touches on a previous podcast subject, which is evangelist Amy Simple McPherson. In 1934, one of the bits Bryce did in her Ziegfeld Follies show was a send-up of McPherson singing, I'm soul-saving Sadie from Avenue A, preaching salvation and making it pay. The Follies appearances that Fanny Bryce made in 1934 and 1936 were some of her most popular. She seemed to have really hit her stride as a comedian.
0: Yeah, she was at that perfect nexus where both she was really on top of her game and her name was big enough that people already wanted to see her anyway, and it was a really, really fabulous time. And one of the characters that she created during this time, called Baby Snooks, became her most famous. As Snooks, Bryce would appear on stage dressed as a tiny child, which was inherently funny because she was a very tall woman, uh, speaking in a little girl's voice, and audiences found this whole thing hilarious. But even without the visual, Baby Snooks was a success. Fanny took that character onto radio, and her little girl voice, which is pretty convincing, I must say, and ceaseless childish questioning played perfectly in the audio-only format. While Bryce had been very popular on the stage for a number of years, as radio expanded her audience, she felt like she was at last getting a taste of the success that she had been chasing since she was just a kid.
1: She started having some health issues in 1936 as well. She developed radiculitis, which is a spinal inflammation that wasn't serious in her case, but it did cause her a lot of discomfort. She also had some dental issues. Many of her teeth were already gone, and she was having problems with the ones she still had, On the advice that removing the remaining decaying teeth might help her overall wellness, she had them all pulled, and she wore dentures for the rest of her life with special sets for stage, eating, and socializing.
0: Yeah, there are stories about the insanely high prices she was willing to pay for custom dentures into the thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And though her career was on the rise thanks to radio, uh, her personal life was once again headed in the opposite direction. Billy Rose, her third husband, fell in love with Eleanor Holm, an Olympic swimmer turned entertainer, when Holm worked on an aquatic review that he had produced. She was also about half his age. Billy told the press that he wanted a divorce before he told Fanny, even though Bryce already knew things were headed that way.
1: In his statement, he said, quote, It's no fun being married to an electric light. Miss Bryce is one of the brightest and cleverest stars the stage or screen has ever had, but our careers clash. I have to travel a lot, and I want my wife by my side. No one has been ousted in this case. It's just an instance of four bullheaded careers clashing. Miss Bryce wants her career. Arthur Jarrett wants his. Miss Holm is willing to give up hers for me. I don't know why, but she is, and that's that. Arthur Jarrett was Eleanor Holmes' husband, who had also filed for a divorce. And that is how Fanny
0: found out she was getting divorced. Uh, when the press then reached out to Fanny for comment on the situation, she said, quote, I'm not used to that sort of thing. I guess it's what you call modern. Billy and Fanny, after almost 10 years of marriage, divorced on October 27, 1938. It was not amicable, as Billy Rose had suggested, and Fanny routinely spoke ill of her ex-husband to friends and associates. She also gave statements to the press that she would never marry again, which was in fact true. For the record, Billy's marriage to Eleanor also ended because he cheated on her.
1: Fanny, by this point, had already moved to California, and she made a new start as her radio career became the focus of her work. Baby Snooks became a national star, and Fanny had a regular weekly radio show with the character. She found a completely new lifestyle on the West Coast, and she found that she dropped her old routine as a late-rising nighthawk and started to keep what she called farmer hours. She would go to bed at 10 p.m. and get up at 8 a.m., which for everyone (laughs) who... Who has ever farmed? That is not farmer hours. No, it isn't.
0: (laughs) But basically, she wasn't doing stage plays at night, so she wasn't doing that, like, finish your show at 10 or 11, go out for late supper, hang out with friends until 4 or 5 a.m., then start going to bed as the sun was coming up. But she described life in Hollywood this way. It's semi-tropical. It's like a resort. It's like being on a vacation. But she also felt that she lost the mental sharpness she had in New York as a result of this more relaxed culture and the climate. She had been painting as a pastime for a while, but she got a lot more serious about it while she was living in L.A.
1: Fanny's health had never really been altogether robust after she started to become ill in 1936. And in July of 1945, she had a heart attack After several months in recovery, she was right back at the mic performing Baby Snooks each week for an audience that was really eager to hear it. Then she developed sharp and recurring headaches. Yeah, they did
0: some fancy footwork to, like, make her absence from the show because the show still ran about, like, this search for Baby Snooks. Uh, She spent the time after her heart attack still working, but also filling her leisure time with activities like painting, as we mentioned, and also interior decorating. She got in the habit of like redoing her friend's houses at no charge just because she liked picking out furniture and putting together rooms. Her work week at this point was really quite short and pretty luxurious. The Baby Snooks show ran on Fridays, and the first read-through of each week's script was on Wednesday. So they would read through on Wednesday, rehearse, rehearse Thursday, do the show Friday. That's work week. While Fanny often gave lukewarm reads in rehearsals, which concerned some people, by the time the show went live at 5 p.m. on Friday, she was on and she always delivered.
1: In an interview that she gave in 1946, Fanny reflected on how the entertainment industry had changed over the course of her 40-year career. Quote, the performer is different today. Years ago, we had a school. The school was vaudeville and burlesque. You knocked around, so it seasoned you, made a mensch of you, so it gave you an interesting background before you clicked. Today, they go right into pictures from nowheres. Somebody sees a girl flipping hamburgers in a drive-in joint, so right away she gets a screen test and, the photographs, and she photographs good, so they develop her and give her a face and clothes. But they can't give you a real personality or give you a natural technique of acting to hold an audience or your own school. If they had put me in front of a camera 35 years ago when I was starting out, I had such a kisser the camera would have stood up and walked away in disgust. In 1948,
0: Bryce and her show sponsor, General Foods, were embroiled in an argument over her contract as television began its infiltration of the home entertainment market, radio performers were often renegotiated at much lower rates than they had commanded before TV. But Fanny was unwilling to take a pay cut just to keep her show, and she did not want to try to launch a TV career. She knew that her character of Baby Snooks only worked as an audio gag at that point. An adult woman, and she had aged in the the decades since she had been doing it, trying to do those jokes in a kid's costume on TV would just not have played.
1: She left radio for the 1948-1949 season and decided to compile her memoirs. But in 1949, she was back on the radio with a two-season contract for more Baby Snooks. She planned that it would be her final career move. Then once that two years were up, she was going to retire. Yeah,
0: she basically was like, I guess I'll do it. I'll just bank this money and have a little bit more cushion for retirement. As all of this was going on, her ex-husband, Nick Arnstein, so that's her second husband, reached out to her. His wife, that he had remarried after they had separated, had died. And he wanted to get back together with Fanny, But she was no longer under his spell And despite many advances, she pretty quickly shut him down.
1: Two years after Baby Snook's return in weekly radio, with six shows left to finish the season, Fanny Bryce had a stroke on May 24th, 1951. She never regained consciousness and died on May 29th. Her funeral was attended by 1,300 people.
0: And while Fanny did not finish that autobiography because she went back to work and didn't have time, she had roughed it out, and near the ending of her original rough draft is as good a quote to sum up her life as I think anybody could ask for. She wrote, I made most things happen for me, and if they were good, I worked to get them. If they were bad, I worked just as hard for that. But I am not sorry. I will tell anybody that, and it is the truth. I lived the way I wanted to live and never did what people said I should do or advised me to do.
1: In 1963, the Broadway musical Funny Girl was written about Fanny's life and focusing on her relationship with Nick Arnstein. It debuted in 1964 with Barbra Streisand appearing as Fanny. In 1968, it was adapted into a film also starring Barbra Streisand. And while it plays really fast and loose with the facts and with the design of its historical costumes, it is still a fun show. Have you seen Funny Girl? No.
0: I love that movie, and you know I don't like musicals, so it's really, like, it's a good movie. Yeah, <laughs> um, And it's one of those things where, like, Barbara Streisand is so charming in it and looks incredibly luminous and just lovely, and she's spectacular to begin with, but, like, I, I uh, she and Omar Sharif are fantastic yeah. together. It is really, really kind to Nick Arnstein. <laughs> <laughs> um, it basically kind of sets up his character as, like, this man who is kind of beleaguered by living in the shadow of his famous wife and he turns to crime because he wants to make his own money and not depend on her all the time. Yeah, it's a little, it's it's real nice to him. <laughs> it's still a very fun film, but if you watch it, particularly after you know the real story, there are a lot of head-scratching moments. And they're, like I said, it plays uh, very fast and loose with... <laughs> With the facts, there are some things that have uh, seeds in reality in the real story that are kind of, like, shifted around to make things work, like, instead of her being born... Uh, with the last name of Borash, that is one of her neighbors. They never really explain that she wasn't born Bryce. She took that mm-hmm. from a neighbor mm-hmm. that she was, she was fond of. Things like that come up, and the again, the costumes are not historically mm-hmm. accurate. But the first costume she walks on screen in is absolutely spectacular. It's this beautiful leopard print coat, and I want it. Ha! <laughs> I will stop waxing rhapsodic about Funny Girl. <laughs> Which is very funny, by the way. Uh, I have a lovely bit of listener mail uh, from our listener Heather. She sent us a beautiful card and a bunch of postcards from her new digs. She writes, Holly and Tracy, thank you again for your work on Stuff You Missed in History class. This year, I was finally able to move back home to Idaho after 20-plus years. In a bit of an adventurous twist, my husband and I settled in Idaho City. This area is full of history, good, bad, and hilarious. I ran into a problem deciding which postcard to send, so I went with all of them. Please enjoy this little glimpse of my home. If you're ever in Idaho, I'll take you to Trudy's and treat you to the second best piece of huckleberry cheesecake in the world. My stepmom, Helga, makes the best. Can't lose. Um, (laughs) I am always up for cheesecake of any flavor. Um, But yes, so Heather sent us all of these fantastic postcards uh, from Idaho, and some of them are really fantastic... um, Historical photographs from mining towns, which are great. There's a lenticular um, mountain lion one that I'm kind of super into. It's just really sweet. And I appreciate that she she took the time to put together a little parcel of postcards for us. So thank you so much, Heather. I. I always say it, but I, it bears repeating. I love hearing from our listeners. And when they send us treats like that, it warms my dark little heart. Yay. <laughs> if you would like to write to us, you can do so at History podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also find us everywhere on social media as MissedInHistory and MissedInHistory.com is our website where every episode of the show exists, as well as some show notes on the ones that Tracy and I have been working on for the last several years. Uh, you can also subscribe to this show. That sounds like a great idea to me if you haven't done it already. Ready, you can do that on the iHeartRadio app, the Apple Podcast app, or pretty much anywhere you get podcasts.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.